Welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast as we continue our conversation on the important subject of policies in the fiscal space. I'm pleased today to host my guest, Julia Shady Akamboy. Julia is a Ghanaian with over 15 years of experience as a corporate and investment banker with a passion for women in the mining industry. She has worked as the head of mining and metals for Stenbig Bank Ghana. Stenbig Bank Ghana is a member of the Standard Bank Group with responsibilities for Nigeria and the Ivory Coast as part of her remit. Juliet, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I look forward to our conversation today. Thank you very much, Sheila. And, and thanks for the opportunity to engage. Um, I'm really excited and I look forward to a great conversation with you. Thanks. Love. That's fantastic. So, you know, um, we talk a lot about the importance of fiscal policies that create an environment that is conducive for investment. And so I thought I would uh, use your expertise and knowledge and experience as a banker to give us a perspective on what are the aspects of fiscal policy that are important when financiers evaluate mining projects for funding. Thanks, Sheila. And I think maybe to just take it one step back, um, it's really to see the, the need for fiscal policy in the first place. And generally speaking, from the economist's point of view, um, fiscal policy would generally be um, referring to government spending and tax policies that influence um, economic conditions. But if we bring that straight into like um, the mining sector and how the fiscal regime in a particular jurisdiction really impacts mining and financing of mining projects in particular, um, it's, it's really always refers to what um, government can and can extract in terms of value or payments um, from a particular project or sector or mining um, and petroleum to be specific in this discussion. And the, the, the types or the, the scenarios that really matter to, to a banker or a financier um, when looking at how government impacts the activities of these um, mining companies or the industry specifically, um, would typically be around um, taxes um, in various forms, um, other forms of payments, royalties, rent, um, and broadly speaking, even into some form of infrastructural support, some form of um, social and community support, and, and how flexible in terms of permitting, in terms of um, giving room for for operations and compliance, um, some of these projects have to go through with, with regards to, to governments, who, who also is a very key player in this, in this space because most of the time they really own um, the land or the resource itself. Most of the time, um, they are the biggest consumer on, on, on the jurisdiction in, in, in question. And any activity really from, from that kind of level or government kind of level um, is sure to really influence even the, the least of, of, of the constituents within a particular um, economic jurisdiction. 
Hmm. So that's very interesting because what you're really saying is anything that has to do with some kind of payment uh, and, and a financial commitment is important uh, when you evaluate the feasibility and, and, and attractiveness of a, a, an extractive project as a prospective lender. I guess, you know, while it may be obvious to you, Juliet, why these issues are important to uh, financiers, it's not very uh, self-evident to the average person. Why would a bank concern itself with those kinds of issues? Thanks, Sheila. Um, really, as a bank, by the time you, you lend, the, the one thing that's important to you is um, the ability to be repaid. And that leads directly into debt serviceability and um, the ability of the project to generate enough cash flows to settle operating expenses and pay for debts and other obligations. And to be able to do that, we typically as lenders would try to forecast um, the project flows, especially around the time of the expected lend or, or, or facility. And the, the thing that makes lenders happy is to be able to have a good forecast, more like a stable um, forecast of what could happen um, to a large degree. We know that um, projects are not usually risk-free and you cannot always 100% forecast everything, but to a large degree, you want to be able to reduce the level of um, movements in terms of cash flow and, and the impact. So to a large extent, your, your priority really is within, let's say, this five-year period of this facility, um, what could go wrong or in terms of what extra payments could be demanded of this project that could make it difficult for the project to meet its debt service requirements. And, and to a large degree, um, taxes, um, other payments um, could, could influence this and government's ability to actually alter some of these things is, is what lenders will try to moderate or at least forecast to a large degree um, in assessing um, these projects. Hmm. So you've said a couple of things that are interesting. First of all, you've spoken about uh, projects being bankable. Uh, what does that mean? When you, as uh, an investment banker, looks at a project, uh, what, what comes to mind uh, when you say, yes, this project is bankable from at least a fiscal policy perspective? Thanks, Sheila. Um, and we, we use this term really quite loosely, but it's um, just to say that it's, it's financeable um, by the bank. It's acceptable and sometimes away from even um, from a cash flow point of view, which is what is the micro thing we look at. Um, you made a good point around um, how that's also placed in the fiscal point of view. So it has to be acceptable, not just in the form of um, ability to repay, meet interest requirements and all of those ratios, but the project itself, the structure the parties involved in the transaction, um, the markets in which 
that that project operates, the legal framework and the regimes around it in terms of even contractual obligations of parties. And in this instance, again, referencing back to our main discussion on government, it's really the, the involvement of governments, the extent and the laxity to change um, product economics or the, the dynamics of the project um, will have to really be ticked off from a lender's point of view to a large degree for, for the lender to really feel, okay, this is really bankable and I want to take this forward. So, so bankability, uh, listening to you then, has to do with order of magnitude of risk. Having accepted that all projects uh, have an element of risk, uh, when you look at project bankability, you really are saying both from a cash flow perspective, the capacity of the borrower to repay and sustain uh, payments as projected in the bank's evaluation, but also the market and how the market and others uh, dynamics in the uh, overall uh, business environment might impact risk. So bankability has to do with the bank being comfortable that all of these elements uh, fall in place and none of them are so extreme they cannot be mitigated. Is that about right, uh, Juliet? You're correct, Sheila. That really sums it all up. Because like we said, you can, you can only manage the risk that you have identified and, and, and then you have the choice to really know what you can live with. Um, but you cannot entirely always eliminate all of the risk. Sure. So you used another term, you, you called it uh, uh, project economics. C can you tell us what you mean by project economics and, and, and why are they so critical to project bankability and, and project feasibility? So you look at um, a project generally, and there are many parties to the project and um, each one has varying interests. Generally speaking, for a mining project, for instance, there's definitely government interest. Um, there are shareholders who have an interest. And in this case, there are lenders as well who have an interest. And to a large extent, it has to make financial sense um, for each party, um, at least to a, a, an appreciable level, to be able to proceed on, on, on a project, because as good as a project may look um, from a lender's point of view, if, if it cannot pay its bills, um, it cannot meet the general requirements of um, operating expenses, for instance, and generating enough cash flow to service debt, that's um, a difficult scenario. Um, we know that there are extremes where projects are not even revenue generating, and you have to find a way of working around that with the kind of models and all of that that you um, employ. But it, it generally has to make sense for um, the, the parties involved, and to a large extent these days, even to society and to community, um, to make um, financial sense to, to, to want to explore um, that project. Sure. So, so basically, the, the, the whole bankable uh, or, or bankability notion revolves around the economics of the project being sound and being able to stand to scrutiny insofar as the expectations 
of all the parties based on the nature of their interest can be expected to be met reasonably, uh, including, as you rightly said, uh, communities, because of course we, we are talking now from a, a financial perspective, but the economics of uh, a mining or petroleum project must also be sound in so far as there are community expectations for, for, for this project to deliver. So, uh, I mean, one of the, the main, I guess, considerations from an investor's perspective, but also from my project cost perspective would be taxation. Uh, can you give us an example of how taxation can potentially uh, tilt the uh, bankability or lack thereof of an extractive project? Sure, Sheila. Um, and, and taxes are a very big um, source of concern for, for a project as big as mining um, and oil and gas as, as we've come to see. And so the degree, um, I'll give an example, for instance, um, in Ghana, um, mining companies pay slightly higher than other corporates. And if you were to model your, your, your analysis based on, let's say, a 35% corporate tax um, over a period of five to 10 years, you, you can at least see your cash flow and see where um, debts can be serviced at comfortably. If at any point, say in year three, um, you wake up and tax rate is say 50, all of a sudden, and, and remember this is cash, this is like um, an immediate expense, taxes. We, it, it's not like, um, something you can account for differently. It's, it's pure expense. It will immediately impact your cash flow. Um, it's also cash, cash payment, if I may put it that way. And so, um, and that translates down into your profitability as well um, as a project. The project puts profitability and, and eventually how um, shareholders and other parties um, can generate return from the project. So it's, it might look like just one piece, but it has impact on not just the lenders, but again, all the other constituents um, within the project or within the, the industry that um, um, this, this project is sitting. Again, um, in terms of tax, it can actually for oil and gas and mining against specific, you can actually, by increasing or reducing tax, um, encourage some form of investments that could stall the ongoing project. Again, I'll give an example. Um, exploration um, is expensive. And at some point, there's conversations around, do you reduce the tax on exploration to just get investors in and all of that? Because that's the only way you actually also can um, ensure your viability as a resource nation or industry going forward into the future. There was a, a little, I mean, I want to call it little, but something as small as um, Ghana introduces um, value-added tax on exploration, which doesn't exist in nearby Cote d'Ivoire. Immediately, exploration companies move towards Cote d'Ivoire. Activity builds outside of Ghana. 
And if for any reason you are you're actually working on a project that is reliant on exploration for expansion, for instance, in terms of the lender space, you would definitely start to experience some sort of delays and um, in, in terms of project delivery and, and scale and all of that. So those are the kind of situations and scenarios and how they eventually filter back through into the whole cycle. Hmm. So, so the, the moral of the tale really is that uh, uh, sometimes the difference between whether uh, banks choose to finance a project is uh, this whole space of uh, fiscal policy and how it impacts uh, the economics of the project. The reverse side, of course, uh, is what you've just said, that even if banks may be willing to finance, uh, the mining and exploration companies themselves may not want to put boots on the ground if they think a particular regime is not friendly and if they can find a more uh, investor-friendly regime elsewhere. And so th there is then a bit of competition uh, then that is inherent in how uh, governments uh, ought to look at fiscal policy. W would that be correct uh, then, Juliet? Perfectly correct, Sheila. So uh, I wanted to ask uh, another question. It's one thing when a, a company is at exploration uh, phase. Generally, there is, uh, as you rightly said, a, a lot of expenditure to be put out with a lot of risk and no certainty. But uh, having said that, a huge and even greater expense happens when there's a discovery and mine is being developed. But even more, companies can't just, uh, you know, lift their equipment and go because too much money is sunk. And because of this, uh, some mining companies, and for that matter, some development finance institutions have promoted this notion of uh, stability clauses that are embedded in mining development agreements. Are these uh, issues that bank would deem important when uh, evaluating project uh, bankability and deciding not just on project bankability and also on the cost of borrowing? And, 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 and why would a stability clause matter or not matter in your uh, profession, Juliet? Thanks, Sheila. Um, yeah, so stability clauses and stability agreements, as we've come to see and know them, um, from a lender's point of view, definitely make a lot of sense because there's that um, ability to forecast um, into the future at a fairly um, predictable level, if I may put it that way. And so from a lender's point of view, um, Project A with a stability agreement and B without a stability agreement, um, I would defer towards project A uh, with a stability agreement. Again, project B without a stability agreement might benefit from market movements um, that could even be better than project A. But is that level of certainty that gives the lender the much needed comfort to proceed with um, a project? On the flip side of that, um, again, is what's this government's interest and, and whether even these stability agreements are really um, outside of any form of um, changes. 
um, in dealing with governments, especially, um, a lot of uncertainty still hangs around, especially in areas of high political risk. And so it, it might give a certain level of certainty, but generally speaking, it doesn't eliminate risk entirely. So if the, the short answer really is, if I had a stability agreement, will it make me look at the project much better? Yes. Um, I'd be a lot more comfortable to say that my models are working well and my projections are in line with what I can see. Um, but in practice, um, it's, it's almost like um, government still has the right to be able to make some changes. To a large extent, in stable economies, it's really as long as it doesn't look discriminatory. Um, it makes um, economic sense to both governments and everybody can see that you're not really targeting a particular project or industry. Um, we will have to remodel and work with that. But yes, um, the short answer really is st stability agreements or stabilization arrangements really um, make, make um, financial projections much easier um, and straightforward for lenders. Yeah, so I think the, the important point that you make is that, yes, you can have uh, stabilization clauses, but they do not uh, detract from any government's rights to make changes to the law at any given time. And when that happens, then naturally the question will arise of whether or not those stability clauses remain intact or whether they are subject to uh, the new law. But, but I think the other point that you make, which interests me, is, is the recognition that uh, the truth of the matter is whatever you do, there's going to be some element of risk. Uh, you just, uh, as a banker, try to factor in uh, the, the known factors, if you wish, upfront as much as possible in the knowledge that there is always the potential for sway. I, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, another question. You, you speak of a certain level of uncertainty either way because of markets. Could you explain a little to uh, our listeners? You're making reference to the fact that even with stability clauses, uh, you, you, know, it, you can still have an unstable, if you wish, uh, fiscal environment, not so much because the laws have changed, but because the markets have moved and therefore from a pricing and a commodity pricing perspective, things can change. Can you just shed light on what that might mean from a bank's perspective, those kind of external factors that are beyond any one jurisdiction? Sure. And Sheila, I think you just touched on that as well, um, especially for commodity prices. That's one big um, risk element that is sometimes very difficult to really forecast. Um, and that is why from a lender, sometimes we try to put in um, some form of um, hedging clauses um, for the period, just again, to try to predict to a certain level what works um, within that, that time frame. Um, interest rates um, in various jurisdictions can, can impact on, 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 on the local project. Um, a lot of commodities are indexed to the dollar, a lot of exchange rate movements can, can actually make a project that was seemingly bankable at the beginning um, not make economic sense halfway through the project as well. Um, 
general market issues. We've, we've had to deal with COVID-19, for instance, which I don't think anybody predicted. I don't think any projects um, would have factored that into the risk um, computations. But that's the reality that we woke up to. Of course, there were project delays. There's been um, supply chain disruptions. Um, some projects are still struggling to get up um, above the water because of COVID-19 um, related issues. It's, it's a world that will continue to be quite uncertain. And that is one of the reasons why lenders or bankers charge a risk premium for the work that we do. Um, does it fully compensate? I don't think so, but it's, you cannot also not take risk um, in, in this or, or, or develop because actually inherently just developing or, or growing your economy comes with these risks um, attached to, uh, to them as well. And with globalization, a lot of things um, that you probably didn't even bargain for as um, a territory or a region um, now mean a lot to you, uh, much more than it would have done in the past if you were just um, focusing on local um, jurisdictions. That's an interesting point you make about globalization. And, and so when, when you as a banker look at a project, um, you know, on a balance, how much of your focus is in the jurisdiction where you are, if you, if you were to give just a, a kind of indicative uh, you know, comment, and how much of it is focused on the world outside? Because of course, governments think inward. They think we are a sovereign government, this is our environment, these are our economic uh, aspirations, these are our resources. But you as a bank, no doubt have to factor in the big picture. You know, how much of that is important when you are evaluating a, an application by an investor uh, seeking to develop a petroleum or a mine project in Ghana? Country risk um, indicators and metrics really are important. But um, to the point around the bigger picture, I think that um, we're probably not there yet as um, um, financiers or lenders or the lens with which we look at projects yet. Um, because, again, even as lenders, a lot of us are a lot more inward focused um, as well um, in terms of um, looking at country A, country B, which one makes sense. Um, of course, we've tried to um, rate them according to our perceived level of risk and all of that. But I think my general sense um, is that the world is becoming, or the broader world economy is becoming a lot more important um, than we would have typically um, thought in terms of um, the way we appraise projects and the way we, we go about funding. The good thing, again, with mining, especially and oil and gas related or energy projects is because of their size and the level of um, sophistication in the kind of markets that these operations have come from, um, from an African point of view, it naturally just opens your mind to that jurisdiction. So I'll give an example. If uh, a gold mining company is entering Ghana, for instance, or any other African country, no matter how small-minded you are thinking about Ghana and country risk and all of that, you cannot have the conversation without looking at the broader picture and then again commodities and how they interact 
um, what fuel prices and all the likes mean for the project that um, probably is just certain in one village in Ghana um, without um, seemingly any other affiliation. So I think that from mining and huge projects point of view, even infrastructure, um, bankers' minds are a lot more open to the global picture than maybe other forms of um, sectors. But the general thinking is that the reliance on the bigger picture or the bigger world out there um, will continue to increase and be very, very important in every analysis we do. That is a very interesting uh, comment, uh, Juliet. And, and I suspect one that is not exactly music to uh, national policymakers' uh, ears, because of course, what you're saying is true. We look at sovereign risk, but actually uh, in terms of the world of finance, in terms of the world of uh, the investors and the risk takers and in, in terms of uh, the commodity market, we look at the whole world. And, and this is the ecosystem that informs our assessment and, and, and my sense is that this is particularly true because uh, mining oil and gas corporations tend to operate in multiple jurisdictions. My guess and my experience is this, that most of them would be wanting to compare the projects in which they invest from country to country. And just as you said earlier, they might put boots in Ivory Coast next door. Uh, they might say, well, you know, in this circumstance, because we have an option to go to Latin America, perhaps we'll just go to Latin America. And I think it's a very important message for policymakers because it brings us back to that whole thing about competition. But here is my last question to you. Because listening to you, uh, I can't help think that uh, on the one hand, we have banks uh, seeking bankability and really looking at, as you rightly said, the project economics. That sounds very objective, structured, and nonpartisan, if you wish. And then you have the investor. They are looking at shareholder interests, and they want to maximize returns and rewards while minimizing risk. And then, of course, you have the sovereign state. The sovereign state wants to maximize uh, revenue from taxation, uh, royalty, development project, and so forth. In this big picture, uh, Juliet, what is it? I mean, the, the, the bank clearly, uh, your client is the investor, but does the bank bother to involve itself at all with governments to, if you wish, be quote unquote, the voice of reason speaking uh, without any interest other than to make sure that before the banks puts money, uh, there's some degree of certainty uh, on the issues that matter to the stability and soundness of the project. Do you ever engage governments at all, or do you simply say, we work with our clients, our clients will sort out whatever differences there are with the government? Sheila, that's a very important point. And I think hitherto we've always thought of ourselves in different worlds, um, shareholders looking at what matters to them, banks and all of that. But we, we have come to learn um, that everything interacts with um, the other party and especially with governments and in jurisdictions that we operate. What we, and, and speaking as 
a former or someone from um, the banking side, actually, what we've always done is to try to bring these parties together. Because on one hand, everyone actually, and you get close to them and you realize that everybody actually means well. Everybody is probably looking at it from their side of the, the mirror and not seeing the other aspects of it. So, um, for instance, um, government or the Central Bank of Ghana at some point, again, um, thought it necessary to insist that all mining flows come into the country. Makes perfect sense. Um, from a government point of view, from a local jurisdiction point of view, you can't see why um, funds that have been generated from local activity cannot come back home. But on the flip side of that, lenders that have helped or actually financed some of these projects sit outside of the local um, country or jurisdiction. There are times when banks have to syndicate across jurisdictions. Um, there are times where even in the same bank, you have to rely on another balance sheet that is offshore to be able to um, make a project, um, to be able to fund projects actually because of the size of, of some of these requests. Now, um, that automatically makes it difficult because sometimes when funds come in, repatriation is another conversation altogether for another day. And it just makes it difficult to be able to satisfy some of these loan agreements or requirements because sometimes you actually have like a, a cash flow waterfall arrangement that sits outside of the jurisdiction just to be able to put some level of control or certainty around these flows. Because again, people have seen in the past how um, liquidity and convertibility risk has actually also caused a lot of defaults um, for, for lenders. And, 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 and it makes sense to be able to build in all of these um, um, protections to be able to make um, funding sense. So yes, not going to government or not engaging larger stakeholders actually also exposes even the bank. On the flip side of that, and, and it's not always just um, going in to ensure that um, governments um, or authorities make policies that actually help, if, for lack of a better word, investors. There are actually times when there's a government policy as well um, towards maybe local content, maybe towards developing um, industries for supply chain and all of that. From a lender's point of view, if you don't engage the, the regulator to say, I see where you're going with this, and it's very good for the social and economic development of the country, but these are the challenges. And until you can also come to the party in a way um, by maybe ensuring some guarantees, by maybe en enforcing that those kind of laws or stabilization clauses that do not make it easy for people to backtrack even when there's a change in government and all of that. If you don't also actually handhold some of these policymakers through that process as well, um, as for the mining company or the investor, they're going to comply because, okay, government says seed of 60% or 80% of your inputs to local people, but the local people will not be able to raise the funding or to build that capacity to take up what is happening. And banks typically will just run around and compete amongst each other for business, this, 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 this. But if you don't have that policy discussion, 
and, and ensure that everybody is actually working towards the same goal. It's just a matter of time and we will come back to the cycle of um, defaults and, 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 and not making things work the way we planned it to be. That's interesting. In other words, there will be unintended consequences because the, 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 really what you're saying is in the end, a best uh, fiscal policy is one that recognizes the need to converge around common interests and that even if there might be the appearance of uh, the state having the final word, in the end, coming back to your turn of phrase, the economics of the project will prevail. Another important point that I think you made, which as you rightly said, is a conversation for another day, is the recognition that actually mining companies don't go to uh, a deposit box in the office and, and, and pull out a wad of money. They go to somebody and that they too account to other people and, and the unintended consequences of ring-fencing decisions on fiscal policy around the sovereign state is to the, the risk that governments failed to take account of these other multiple interests. And the bigger the project, uh, the, the, the more they are. Uh, and the bigger the project in financial terms, uh, the more multi-jurisdictional and multi-corporate uh, they tend to be. And unless everyone around the table feels that their interests are provided for, then uh, we risk that things come apart uh, at the seams. That tends to be my experience. But as you said, uh, let's deal with that another time. Juliet, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge. I suspect that uh, this will be a breath of fresh air for the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast uh, followers. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sheila. Thanks for the opportunity to engage on this important subject. Thanks.